if she uses the sweetness to avoid feeling and expressing her anger, it's a neurotic problem. But if she uses it to help her accomplish something, it's it's constructive, it's healthy. And so she needs to be both sweet and be able to be angry. So that's the whole point of therapy is to develop that <laughs> flexibility. You know, if the only tool we have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. So broadening the tools we have in our defenses. And that's what seems like you just consistently saw where she was and could support her developing the other parts of her that were already there. Welcome to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast brought to you by the ACO. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Each month, we feature a case presentation, interview, or discussion by one or more of our doctors who practice a different kind of psychiatry. We are interested in your questions and comments, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to aco at organomy.org. The best way to help the ACO spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. We'd love for you to leave a rating and review about what you enjoy about the podcast, and you can do so on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or on Amazon's Audible. This helps others know why they may want to listen. We're sending out issue 48.2 of the Journal of Ergonomy to one of our listeners who let us know what they appreciated. Stay tuned for the next rating and review raffle. If you're interested in attending one of our webinar presentations, you can meet the doctors and join in on the discussion afterwards. You can connect with us and learn more at ergonomy.org or adifferentkindofpsychiatry.com. This episode features the audio from our webinar presented by me entitled, Medical Orgone Therapy Helps a Young Woman Become Independent. Dr. Chris and I discussed the care of my patient, Daisy, who initially presented anxious, grieving, and unsure if she could take care of herself. Through therapy that began in person before the pandemic, in which she continued virtually, Daisy addressed her characteristic tendency to become scattered, put others before herself, and shy away from expressing her frustration and uncovered a strong natural impulse to take care of herself and do things her way. So Daisy's a 25-year-old young woman. And uh, what's interesting is I saw her for about a year and a half before the pandemic and then throughout until today. So she was about 22 years old when she first called and when she called, she was anxious. She was having trouble standing up for herself. She mentioned on the first phone call that her sister had a rare illness. And right from the first phone call, what came across was that when she was anxious and overwhelmed emotionally, she became a bit scattered. It was hard for me to know um, what was the most important thing going on. Why was she seeking therapy at that time? Um, and so I learned more on our first appointment together. Yeah, tell us about that. Daisy was 22 years old. She, she comes bouncing into the office with a smile. You could just feel the energy, you know, um, all around her. She has this free-flowing brunette hair, uh, yoga pants that are, that are loose, and, and they're just this kind of carefree, energetic vibe to her, which contrasted with what she told me, which was that she's very anxious. She's having a hard time standing up for herself, especially with authority figures or her boyfriend. And then she told me how her sister, who, who functioned as a maternal figure, kind of a guide growing up, she had a rare form of cancer and was, and was 
going to be dead in, in six months or less. That's terrible. So, so what what was were the first things that you really focused on with her in that early period? What stood out was again she was telling me about her sister, and she still had this kind of carefree attitude when she was sitting across from me, until she said, uh, and she kind of looked off into the distance and said, "Doctor Burr, you know, it's like you're just trying to do the best that you can when all you feel is sad." And it stuck, it stuck out to me that she didn't say how I feel. She said, you know, the, the kind of she's talking about her character in a play, you know. And so I, I had to stop taking a, a psychiatric history and a medical history and connect with her. And um, so I said, Daisy, how do you feel? Do you feel sad? And it was like it, it like uh, it was a surprise to her that, oh, my God, I feel sad. And she started to cry and tell me about this sister who was about four years older than her and had kind of uh, helped her throughout the stages of life. And here she was, she just graduated from college, was working at a restaurant, unsure of what to do. And she was losing her guide growing up. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was a profound moment. It, it really helped us to connect to, to, for us to focus on how she was feeling even more than the information she was telling me. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things we often talk about is it's the process, not just the content of what somebody's saying. And that characteristic thing that you picked up of her sort of disconnecting from herself sounds like uh, was profound. And I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing my guess is that probably followed the, how significant her reaction to you was probably followed through as indicating that's a significant aspect of how she deals with things. Is that true? That, that's correct. So um, after we established some rapport in that initial evaluation, we decided to work together in therapy. And that came up almost every single appointment, if not every single appointment, that we would get into something, she would connect with how she felt. And then sometimes within the appointment, sometimes between appointments, she would get away from it. And it was this delicate dance that we did where I had to follow where she was and be in tune with, with what was going on, but also not, um, not hit her over the head with it either. You know, that th she needed time to adjust to connecting with her feelings. So there was times that I had to go with it when she led away from her feelings and would gently bring her back or would just allow her to, to, to get into something less important and then come back to it. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so some of the things that were bothering her was, especially with her boyfriend, she was in a, a committed relationship and it was becoming more serious, but she had a really hard time telling her boyfriend when he would do something that would upset her and make her angry. And um, she shied away from letting him know how frustrated she could be with, with what he said or did. And then kind of in the background of all of this was that she graduated college and her parents were both professionals and had this expectation for her of what she was supposed to do. She was supposed to um, become a professional, maybe go to graduate school. Um, they had an interest in her becoming a teacher. And she had some interest in becoming a teacher, but she just wasn't sure. And I felt clear that it was important for me to help her parse out what was important to her and, and what she wanted to do, but not give her any direction with that. That I mean, her parents were giving her plenty of direction. And um, that wasn't my role. I wasn't going to be a, a paternal figure, but um, I, I was kind of 
replacing her sister, being her guide, being alongside her as she figured things out for herself. So that whole question of when do you give a patient advice? When do you uh, let them uh, struggle and come up with things on, on their own? Uh, is something that, that I think we deal with all the time. So what was it that helped you sense what you needed to do with her? So one thing that, that stood out was she often could um, fall into this role of appearing like a damsel in distress. She could say, I don't know what to do and, and, and really look like, oh my God, like she needs help. You know, we, we have to come to the rescue. Mm-hmm. And, but it, it just had this feeling to me that she can put on that attitude. She could look that way, like she needed rescuing, but really she was a strong person. You know, she was very sensitive and could be moved emotionally very easily, mm-hmm. but uh, she was a survivor. She was strong. And, and that's what has happened throughout her life is people will see the free flowing anxiety. She has the sadness and, and feel like they have to come to the rescue when really um, my role with her was helping her see what I could see in her, the, the knowing how strong she was, and she didn't even know it. So you, you've touched on something I want to be sure we come back to. I don't want to interrupt too much of your story with theoretical ideas, but what you're talking about is you uh, got an understanding of the layers of her character, what, what was deeper and what was more on the surface, what was coming from her health, what was coming from her neurosis. So be sure we come back to that, because I think it's a, a very important thing to help people understand what's different about the approach we use with medical organ therapy. So, um, But I, what I'm hearing is that you just very quickly and intuitively got a sense of, of which to support and which to try to uh, over, help her overcome. So that's yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you, actually, when we first met, you know, she was um, five, nine, five, ten, a tall woman. Um, and we were talking about what was going on. She was telling me what she was looking for in, in therapy. And as she stood up to leave, you know, I again saw how large she was, how, how tall she was. And as we were talking, uh, I realized reflecting back that she presented herself in a small, like a little girl. Um, who had no clue how to take care of herself, but really she had that inside of her, but she didn't project it. And in fact, she projected a much smaller, weaker image of herself that, uh, I mean, it was just amazing to see her stand up and rise from the couch and, and whoa, here's this woman, but, but she comes across like this young little girl. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you got that her basic nature is, is to be actually uh, capable instead of the damsel in distress. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, great. So um, I don't know if there's more you want to tell us about what happened before the pandemic, but my guess is that the pandemic coming really must have affected how you worked with her and what happened. And I want to hear, and I'm, I wa- I'm sure our audience wants to have some sense of how does that affect uh, the work that we do? So. Sure. So what I'll say is before the pandemic, you know, so we were working together for about a little bit more than a year. And The beginning of her treatment was really helping her grieve because her sister did pass. It it wasn't difficult for her uh, to show emotion, to cry, but the depth of it, for her to get into the depth of how intense she felt, that was where she needed help. So, and she could also be self-critical. So for instance, many of the first appointments that we had together were helping her 
uh, grieve the loss of her sister and and her sadness came easily, but also quickly she could criticize herself for, uh, you know, why am I still crying? Why am I not over this yet? As if there was supposed to be some mechanical time limit to her sadness and grief of, of the loss of her sister. And I remember there was a time, again, something saying something so simple went a long way for Daisy. So she was criticizing herself for, for still being upset about the loss of her sister. And I just looked at her and said, Daisy, you can cry as much as you need to. And she looked at me again with that surprised look and then cried even more. But what I then learned was she wasn't crying for her sister. Then she was crying for herself because she had been raised where uh, she was, quote, too emotional or was crying too much or was displaying too much feeling. That was what she was up against in grieving the loss of her sister. Mm. You know, that was enough. Again, you've reminded me one of our key understandings in organomy is that emotions are spontaneous. And that's what it sounds like you were able to do, but also help her see there's no program, there's no timing, you can't make yourself feel something, but you somehow helped her uh, get the things out of the way that, that prevented her from just going with the spontaneous emotions over there. That's wonderful. Yes. And the other thing I'll point out before we get into the pandemic was there were things probably every week that frustrated her in a relationship with her boyfriend, and it helped her tremendously for her to voice her frustration to me to just be out with how she felt, but especially with her frustration and anger that um, she had particularly difficulty with. She had a natural tendency to become frustrated and shrink away from it and, and um, I mean, she would tell me about times when she become angry and then felt stuck and had to express it with her parents and, and would just kind of go run and hide and, and just had tremendous difficulty with expressing those feelings. Um, so it was this wonderful natural progression for her to express it to me. And then sometimes that week, sometimes three weeks later, for her to develop the courage to then express that anger with her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Even from the beginning of therapy, it was clear that her boyfriend could be pushy, could be controlling, and and had a tendency to get angry. But if Daisy could speak with him and could voice how she felt, um, to his credit, he could hear her and apologize. And that meant the world to her. For her to be able to say how she felt and and not be pushed back and to, to have someone apologize um, that was a, a, a tremendous help for her to, you know, to be out in the open about how she felt, to not be, um, to shrink down and, and be a smaller version of herself. That's great. Well, I, we actually already have a question on the Q&A that's relevant to, to where you are before you get to the, the pandemic. And the question is, how often were you seeing her that first year? Because I think that'll put in perspective for people the, the kind of work you were doing and then what happened after that. I see. So I saw her once weekly along those lines. um, She was working at a restaurant part time and her parents were supporting her so that she could have time to figure out exactly which career path she wanted to follow. And in some ways they were very uh, liberal and and open with her about, you know, here's here's some time that you can have. We're going to I don't want you to rush into some job that doesn't feel right for you to, to support yourself. But there was also this um, mixed signal she'd get. You know, they would 
call and, and say, you know, how's it going? And there was always this underlying message of, you know, you better get on it. You know, tomorrow you're going to let us know what career you're going to start. As much as it felt free, I think on their part, there was always this underlying feeling of you had to do the right thing. And that really undermined Daisy's independence of, of just grappling with, do I do this? Do I do that? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was always in the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I, I was just getting the sense that not only uh, did she end up dependent uh, emotionally of having to act like a little girl to get uh, contact with them, she ended up uh, financially dependent and uh, for her livelihood and just even decisions. So uh, to help her address that was a huge thing. Yes. I mean, every, you know, if she were to buy something, uh, a new dress or something, they would, they would have a criticism about it because they were supporting her. So it was mixed messages every time they interacted. So let's, let's go on to um, what happened then. Uh, How did the pandemic affect her and the therapy? So I'll tell you, I don't know if I'll ever forget this, but I kind of mentioned how she has this wonderful energy and she'd bounce into the office. Well, sometimes depending on our schedule, I might see her early in the morning and, and it was never a problem because she just had this energy that could you know, wake you up like you, um, you couldn't ignore it. But I, I remember the first time we logged in, you know, so I think this was the end of March of 2020 and um, we had agreed to transition to telemedicine appointments on the computer. And so instead of bouncing into my office, I had the sense that she had her laptop on her belly lying in bed. And she just had this drained look of, you know, kind of looking half asleep. She had a complete depletion of energy Mm -hmm. and it was so disheartening to see that the change, you Mm -hmm. know, she had asthma was, was terrified of the contagion of, of the coronavirus stopped her restaurant job to collect unemployment. Uh, She loved going out with her girlfriends, dancing and just being out. And and she was clearly an extrovert, um, but loved to be with people. And it pretty much stopped on a dime when the the country shut down and Pennsylvania shut down. And it was this this depressed, depleted look. The the good thing that, that happened with me knowing her before and not working with her just then was that because she had this wonderful free flowing energy, I knew I needed to support her and help her deal with, especially that, that first uh, lockdown. But again, I didn't need to come to the rescue. I needed to support her and offer any kind of clear advice, especially, you know, in March, 2020, when no one knew up from down of, of what was the right thing to do. So I did my best to give her clear guidance and to, again, be alongside her to know that I was there to help. But I also had to make sure, again, that I wasn't going to jump to the rescue and that she could get through this. Mm-hmm. And it was never something that was said between us, but it was clear that that she really needed that, that this was um, a, a horrible national uh, planetary problem, but that she could deal with it. I think not only um, despite the pandemic, but actually because of the pandemic, she actually was able to go further in her therapy. Yeah, say more about that. That's a, that's a very important uh, aspect that I think a lot of people don't understand. Adversity can actually help people work harder on themselves. That's correct. So we were fortunate to set the groundwork of her being clear of what she needed to do. 
what she needed to be clear on and, and what anxieties she needed to face. But because we're able to do that, the interactions with her, her boy, I'm getting chills just talking about it. It was so amazing how she was able to rise to the occasion of dealing with the pandemic. I mean, her and her boyfriend being clear, for instance, uh, about how they wanted to address it. You know, there was a lot of couples, a lot of families that maybe there was rifts between them about how to handle it. Do, do we follow all the precautions? Do we say, you know, put care into the wind? Um, they were constantly in communication to make sure they were respecting each other's values and being clear on how they wanted to, because they were holed up in a one bedroom apartment wow. for over a year together. And, wow. and that's hard on anybody, but it, they actually became closer because of it. Hmm. You know, she, she was a little bit more cautious than her boyfriend, Dan, but she was able to tell him when she was concerned and scared and, and felt confident to be able to, to voice her concerns to him. And he was able to hear her. Mm-hmm. And that meant, again, the world for her, to, to her to feel uh, that partnership with her, with her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll tell you, there were things that did come up. You know, they both had their difficulties that in, intensified. I think we all did. Um, our natural tendencies, um, uh, counterproductive and productive were intensified. So I remember her telling me that that Dan, she noticed him drinking a little bit more and, and she was concerned about him and she brought it to his attention and he snapped at her and said how judgmental she was. And, and she came to one of our appointments and said, you know, I, I feel really confused because, you know, I, I feel like I shouldn't say anything, but I'm concerned about him. And he said I was judgmental and that really kind of knocked her down a peg to, for her to be accused of being judgmental. And it was really helpful for us to reflect on, Daisy, you're, you're not a judgmental person. In fact, you're, you're very accepting of other people and their variations and, and their different points of view. Um, this isn't you. This is Dan. And, you know, it helped her to be clear on uh, what was her, what was her difficulties and what was his and, and something that he needed to deal with. A subtle aspect of her being hard on herself that you addressed by just supporting the healthy perceptions. Correct. Correct. You know, she was clear when she said it, but then when he kind of fought back with his, he had a tendency to feel judged that had nothing to do with her and she needed clarity on that. So yes. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So what else uh, would be good to tell us about her? Well, uh, I'll tell you one thing that, that comes up even now in, in therapy, and it was just a fun moment between us. You know, I remember there was a time she logged into the telemedicine appointment, and she's telling me about her parents, and she's telling me about Dan, and she's telling me about uh, one of her friends. And I'm thinking, Daisy, what? Why, why are we talking about all these other people? And, and I reflected, and I said, Daisy, it's like we're, you know, there's a train, and you're the caboose in your own train. And, and Daisy, you know, heard that and, and she went with it and, and she looked at me and, and, and seriously said, I ain't no caboose. I'm a goddamn engine. <laughs> and it was so wonderful to hear because again, that was a, it was a way that she put herself um, lower than everybody else. You know, it was, it was a way that she minimized her herself kind of criticized herself and, and just in that interaction. And we'd come back to that time and again, and she'll catch herself and we'll joke about it. So it's been a wonderful joke that we have to keep her in check about, you know, am I, am my feelings, my 
ideas, what I want, are they, you know, f- at the forefront? You, you put it as a joke. It, it's so much deeper than that, Dr. Burrett, you know, because what uh, you know, we have this concept of the red thread of the character. If you can capture some essential part that always that, that reflects an essential aspect of how the person deals with things. And I think that's related to it or it's close to it that you got that she always puts herself last and you found a wonderful emotional way um, instead of an intellectual sort of dull, um, oh, I got my red thread. It's, it's like you, you just got it with her and, yes. and there. So that's great. Wonderful. Yes. No, it's been wonderful. Um, and, and so the other aspect of how she rose to the occasion during the pandemic that I think is worth highlighting is that so when the pandemic first hit and the lockdown started, she was on unemployment. And when it started to seem like things, you know, we, we get through um, the, the spring and the fall and the winter and, and, and things looked very bleak, she started to look ahead and, and say, what am I going to do? And her parents then uh, actually kind of um, strengthened their, their push to her of you got to do something and you got to figure it out. And we're really pushing for her to get some credit so that she could uh, be prepared to become a teacher when things started opening up. And I'll tell you that I think that adversary of, of her parents pushing her and her developing some confidence in her own abilities really helped because she told me that she couldn't talk to them because they had a way of really dismissing when she tried to speak up for herself. So she wrote them a letter she was just so excited to tell me how pissed off she was mm-hmm. about them pushing her. And she, she, I mean, she described feeling like a superhero to really let them know, you know, I'm tired of being pushed around. I will figure things out, but you need to give me some space to figure things out. And with that, she found a job, a remote job, so she could feel comfortable returning to work with, so she didn't have to go back to the restaurant. But it paid her a wage that she could support herself, that she didn't need any money from her parents. It was like the combination of the pandemic and her parents pushing her at a time when she now had a base of confidence that that pushed her or or her internal push got her to the point where she just said, you know, it's time. I'm going to get this job. Mm -hmm. And you know what? It was a job that she hated Mm -hmm. and she didn't want to do it. It, it. There was an aspect of it that kind of required a certain pushiness. So she had to collect these surveys. They were not surveys for um, just the community of uh, the public, but uh, inter-business surveys. And, you know, people could call, it was, it was like cold calling almost for these surveys and people could hang up on you. People might try to, to get you to hang up. And, and she had to really kind of steal herself to some of that. But then she could also learn that some of her sweetness and her wonderful charisma, she could actually use to her advantage. Um, for this job. How, how did she do that? Because that, 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 again, it highlights one of those features of our nature uh, that we have is something we can use for constructive uh, purposes, but when it becomes a defense, it, it's our greatest weakness. So her tendency to be accommodating or put herself last could actually be something that comes from her strength of, of being sweet and accommodating. You know? Correct. So um, most people in that line of work were like what you'd think of as a stereotypical pushy salesman. Mm-hmm. And it, she found out that, for instance, being accommodating, you know, not thinking she had to, to collect that survey on that phone call 
and actually she taught coworkers who've been doing the job for years uh, that maybe you could actually arrange for a phone call later and they would actually call you. And that was, it was almost this crazy idea that no one would ever con- thought mm-hmm. of because, you know, the whole um, training and the whole mindset was you had to do it on that phone call because if you didn't get through on that phone call, it was at the end of it. But, but she learned by being sweet and accommodating and it, it worked. It was, it was great. That's and that great. also helped her build confidence because she was facing some of her anxiety of, of putting herself out there more, but also knowing that, that she had these wonderful qualities that she could use to her advantage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, if she, if she uses the sweetness to avoid feeling and expressing her anger, it's a neurotic problem. But if she uses it to help her accomplish something, it's, it's constructive, it's healthy. And so she needs to be both sweet and be able to be angry. So that's the whole point of therapy is to develop that <laughs> flexibility. You know, if the only tool we have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. So broadening the tools we have in our defenses. And that's what seems like you just consistently saw where she was and could support her developing the other parts of her that were already there. You know? That's right. And that's something that no matter if you're on a computer screen like we are now or in person, you can always do that. You can always work with someone's character attitude. I mean, it changes. And I think we've all had to adapt working through a computer, um, but it, it's possible to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. So, um, uh, I mean, you've told us so, so much, painted such a rich picture about her. I want to be sure if there's anything uh, else just about her, her case um, before we start uh, looking at some, some questions. Well, it's not as much specific to her, but I think it stands out, which is that, you know, as things actually got better and, and we opened up more with the pandemic and, and more people were going out and about and going back to restaurants, that actually allowed some deeper feeling to come out in her that was, uh, I think, has been happening with a lot of people, patients, and and just people that I've met. But it also shows that there's different depths that we're working with. Mm -hmm. And for her, for instance, being an extrovert especially, um, she couldn't allow herself to feel the pain and the, the longing that she had to get together with others early on during the pandemic. And I had a sense of that, but that wasn't something that I could bring to the table that that needed um, to come from her. Mm-hmm. And it was very moving to hear her just talk about the misery she felt with how the world was and, and how she wanted it to be and how much she missed, you know, just going out and dancing with her bunch of her friends was something she loved to do on a weekend. And she still hasn't done it. She's, she's been um, more comfortable getting together with friends, especially outside. Um, but, but for her to have a place to express some of that misery meant a lot for her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually a question that came up. What role does exercise play in addressing someone's emotional life? And you've sort of been implying that about her desire in, in dancing, but I know that's affected a lot of people during the pandemic of getting shut in and not being able to do their usual physical exercise. Was that a factor with her? Yes. So um, she often did group exercise classes, I think, at the local YMCA, and she stopped that completely. And it was very hard for her to transition to jogging on her own or to doing uh, video 
uh, group exercise classes. So she she stopped exercising a lot, which did take a toll on her. It allowed some tension to build, but it was important for us to address that, but also um, her desire to move, to uh, discharge some of her physical energy was important. And I, I work with, with all my patients on that, mm-hmm. but it was also important because there was a time that stood out, which was we were talking about her exercising, getting moving in whatever way that she could enjoy despite the pandemic restrictions. And, and she'd been doing that for a good amount of time. And, and she told me, you know, it, it seems like it's not working anymore. You know, I'm still frustrated and I, I'm still feeling kind of crappy, but I've been exercising. I, I don't know what's going on. And that was a good moment for us to address that you can't exercise away your feelings. You have a specific impulse to cry, to become frustrated or display rage. And exercising can help reduce some of the the everyday tension that you feel and can be important and can be enjoyable, but it's not a substitute for expressing those other feelings. And that was very helpful for her to hear, to understand that process. Yeah, good. Because I I found that with patients, the the one concept that I'm pretty sure it comes from uh, Wilhelm Reich, that that impulses are incredibly specific. So if the impulse is to run, punching won't do it. If the impulse is to cry, uh, getting angry won't do it. If the impulse is to run, crying won't do it, and so forth. So, so just identifying what is the actual underlying impulse and if it's an emotional because imp- you can have intellectual impulses, physical impulses, emotional impulses, and exercise will take the edge off of some of the emotional ones. But as you said, it just will not take care of it. So, so uh, that simple concept is incredibly useful. And it sounds like uh, she quickly got it, that she needed to express an emotional impulse rather than a, an exercise impulse. So great. Yeah. Yes. So uh, before we go to some questions, bring us up to date. Where are things now with Daisy? She's doing very well. So okay. actually, it was just, it might be just a month ago. It's a very hot job market, if you haven't heard. Uh-huh. She actually took the chance and, and re- um, took an interview for a reach position, something that she was, wasn't quite sure if she was qualified, wasn't sure if they would uh, um, even consider her. And she got it and she got a 50% pay raise. So before she was taking care of herself, now she's really doing well for herself. Mm -hmm. And it was with a job that she enjoys Mm -hmm. and a job that she cares about. And it it, it just catapulted her forward. It was just so wonderful to hear her make that uh, Mm -hmm. leap and and take a chance with a job that, that really was satisfying for her. So she went from supporting herself and becoming more independent to being more satisfied with her work function. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I'll say is that she's still doing wonderfully addressing whatever conflicts come up with her boyfriend and, and he's doing a wonderful job accommodating her change and her being more open with her frustration, especially. And I'll tell you the problem that she runs into now is handling her pleasure and handling the satisfaction she has with her relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, she will start to feel anxious and, it's not quite clear what's going on. She's not uh, afraid of something. She's not, it's not her anger that she's not expressing. She's anxious because she's not used to dealing with the amount of sati- um, pleasurable satisfaction she has with her relationship. 
It's such a wonderful new problem for us to deal with. <laughs> yes. But that, that, again, that's a basic um, um, concept that we have in ergonomy that I don't think is uh, understood uh, in many other uh, circles in psychiatry. And so it, the concept of pleasure anxiety. So can you say just a little bit more for the audience? What, what is pleasure anxiety? Emotionally, she's... Uh, her, her impulse is to expand, to, to feel pleasure, to be out in the world, to be with her boyfriend. And she's become so used to becoming constricted to a certain degree that now there's an anxiety because that constriction, the expansion is pushing against that constriction that she's, that she's had, the armor that she's developed, uh -huh. um, that now there's this, this uh, battle between expansion and contraction, and, and that's felt as anxiety when in mm. fact, there's just this underlying pleasure that's pushing to come out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it, it, came, it comes out in, in these wonderful ways. You know, she was, she told me she was singing. Uh, she was walking around the apartment, just feeling wonderful singing. And then there was this, huh, and, and she went to her boyfriend and said, am I too loud? You know, and, he, and he's just typing away, working. And he said, yeah, you're loud. And, and she, and she was wondering like, wait a second, you know, he, he doesn't seem upset, but um, she just had this feeling like, oh my God, I'm, I'm too out and I'm too, I'm, I'm, there's too much going on. And then she talked to him and said, you know, is it a problem? And he said, no, <laughs> you asked if you're allowed. I mean, you're, you weren't quiet. And then just <laughs> this, he had this innocent reaction to her question. Mm -hmm. and, 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 but it was wonderful that she realized something, something's off, you know, I, I, I'm feeling pleasurable, but I, I felt this moment of, of, oh my God, you know, and, yeah, and, yeah. and when she talked to him and she realized that she, then she sang louder and, and just enjoyed herself even more. And there's this wonderful insight that she had into, oh my God, I, I, I can feel this pleasure and I can, I can take it, you know? That's great. That's great. Yeah. 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 So, so, um, a couple of things that that all of this has has reminded me of is you know we have the title a different kind of psychiatry so uh, as soon as we have that title how is it different and so you know I, I think many people might just hear the case that you've presented and say well that's what any good psychotherapist would do but I want to underscore a few of the the basic central things that that I hear in in your case just to uh, clarify how what, what we do and how we look at a patient is different. So one of them is, is um, what I said about the layers of, of the character structure. So you, you really got a sense, my, my impression is intuitively you got a sense right in the very first session, this is actually a strong uh, person who acts weak, you know, and um, you know, that distinction, you know, I've had patients who act strong, but inside they're actually weak. And so for you to understand the basic layering of what is healthy versus what is neurotic is such a crucial thing in any of the work we do. And you present it like it was so easy. I don't think it, <laughs> like it didn't take any work, but you were doing a lot of work to just perceive and sense, uh, because in the very beginning, she presented so many things. How did you know what to pick up on? And I think 
intuitively you know, but I, I think you also have that structure of the roadmap of, all right, which are the healthy impulses, which are the neurotic ones? And with her to, to treat her as if she's fragile would have uh, undermined her basic healthy uh, strengths. Uh, whereas there's a little girl who um, I presented, it was the Feelings Doctor um, podcast that we did. Yes. She was just... Um, she was just the opposite, that, that on the surface she looked tough, but underneath she was incredibly fragile. In fact, she had been taken to another therapist who thought she was just being dramatic and tried to do a behavioral approach to stop the, the neurotic uh, um, reactions of her, uh, how she was acting, and it made things worse. So understanding that structure, I think going back, if you look at this whole case, that's what you did intuitively, but I think consciously from the very beginning is you sense, all right, by nature, the health in this woman is very capable. She's full of emotion. She tends to restrict certain ones. That's her neurotic tendency. And she acts dependent and, and fragile when she's not. So. That's all very true. And, and the one thing I would add is um, it was important not to get lost in the content of what she was saying. She had a lot to present. She would say a lot. She was talkative and, and you could get lost in that. And it was important, for instance, even in that initial evaluation for me to pick out, you know, she, she mentioned sad, but it, it didn't really stand out in the content, but there was the way she looked and, and the way I felt of, there was just this feeling I had. So it was very important for me uh, to look at her and to see where she was and to have my own sense of how I felt with what she was presenting to me yeah. because I could get caught up with um, her damsel in the stress attitude, but also just in how much she presented. Right, right, right. So, uh, the, I mean, the, the other thing um, is it's not uh, just understanding uh, which is neurotic and, and, and which is it's healthy. It's understanding what to do with each of those. So with her, um, what I'm hearing is you, you sensed you needed to be uh, actually fairly sensitive to how you address things with her, but not treating her as if she's fragile, but knowing she's incredibly excitable. And that's what you felt at the beginning. So exciting, that's part of her, her nature, but that uh, um, exciting reaction could lead you astray too. So That's correct, yes. Yeah. So the, the other thing, um, just to underscore, what makes um, medical organ therapy different is not just any particular technique. It's not about having someone on the couch. It's, it's about how we look at the patients and understanding them. And, and that's what I think is wonderful about this case. She was the sort of person that also, I think, allowed you to easily understand her in some ways if you didn't get distracted by all the content and all the, uh, the, the stuff going on. Um, I had a clear sense that she wanted to be seen for who she really was Okay. underneath, even if, uh, I mean, she didn't say that for sure, <laughs> but, but there, there, there was certainly a healthy push for her to be able to be who she was. And I think our initial connection helped her to feel comfortable that she could do that with me. And, and that just helped us um, yeah. again as a, 
Yeah, that's the other thing I was going to say is, is um, you know, in terms of our concept about contact, of being accurately perceived, seen and heard, we all need to be seen and heard. And every t- time along the way, whenever she was genuinely seen and heard by you, by her boyfriend, um, maybe occasionally by her parents or by her boss, uh, she just um, came out and, and the health uh, flourished in her. So Yes, and, and one thing I'll add, um, I, I didn't mention earlier is it was very helpful for her to be irritated or frustrated with me that mm. that really helped her. So, um, you know, there were times when she would have that attitude of I can't deal with all this There's too much. At one point, actually, in the pandemic, she asked if it might be wise for her to have appointments twice weekly. And you know, she even made a comment of, of how good working with me was. And I, I, I heard that and, oh, that, that sounds nice. I'm, I'm glad I'm helping you. But there was something about it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when I reflected, I reflected out loud to her that, you know, I understand you're anxious, but I don't know, Daisy, it, even though things are very hard right now and you're anxious, you're really doing well for yourself. And, you know, we can consider that, but I think we should continue how things how they are right now because you're doing well and she looked at me and was like well what am i supposed to do was you know frustrated and kind of went from uh complimenting me to saying like well you're the doctor you know you you got to do something for me i'm asking you for more appointments and i didn't say anything um but she allowed it to be out there and then she she then went uh uh-oh like, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I hope I didn't, you know, um, I, I hope I wasn't too, too mean with you. And I let her know that that's allowed, you know, you, you can say what you need to say to me. And, you know, it's a doctor patient relationship, but we're also two human beings and, and, and she can be angry with me. Mm-hmm. And that really helped her feel more comfortable. Um, yeah. But a, but a perfect example, I think, of you not getting drawn into her acting helpless, like, oh, my God, I can't handle my life. I need two sessions for support. Now, there's another patient. They might need that. And that Correct. would what would help them. So, again, seeing each person for their individual um, uh, nature and their individual character defenses is, is what uh, working in this way is all about. So that's great. That's great. So uh, a, a couple, one other thing, just a general conceptual thing, I want to underscore, you've alluded to it, but uh, our understanding of anxiety, it's simply uh, the feeling we have when an impulse does not have a satisfying outlet. So you know, many people will treat anxiety like it's a symptom that's got to be gotten rid of. We understand it as a signal and consistently that's what you did with her. She was anxious about expressing her her anger, she got anxious about feeling pleasure. And it's not about getting rid of the anxiety, it's allowing the underlying healthy impulse to have an outlet. That's right. So so a couple of questions that have come from the audience, were her parents a help or a hindrance to her gaining independence? And did you ever meet with them? I never met with them, but I would say they were both. (laughs) And um, the way they were a hindrance was uh, especially in the beginning of not giving her space to, to feel things out and have some autonomy uh, because there was always um, this pressure or, or, or looking over her shoulder about what she's doing. And is she making the right moves to become independent? And yet 
as I mentioned earlier, when she had a, a base of confidence and felt more comfortable speaking up for herself, their push, I think, helped her. It, it rallied her to go out on her own and take care of herself. Um, so it was both. Yeah, good. Good. And along those same lines, another question is, is there a rule of thumb parents should follow in figuring out how much to support their adult children? That's a good question. I, I think, as you said earlier, it depends on the patient. So, so um, I didn't work with her parents, but if I did, I would have helped her, them to see how uh, much she needs some space to figure things out on her own and to back off. And yet for someone else, uh, I work with a lot of young adults and teenagers where, where parents are grappling with um, dependence and independence, and they're at that transition stage. And it just depends on the patient. Some of them, you know, want to go out on their own and become independent, but they don't, they're not capable of it yet. And they need help to, to become more capable. And so they need more guidance and more structure. Right. And so it depends on the patient, what the patient needs. Right. Yeah. Um, another question is how is she using therapy now? Because, because it seems like she's made a lot of progress. So what, what is the function of therapy at this point? I think is really what the question is. Yeah, she's improved. Her symptoms have improved. But what is what are you working on now? So she still is in therapy and um, some of it is consolidating the gains she's made. I mentioned helping her deal with the pleasure that she's feeling. Um, That's a big part of it. But also there are deeper layers that we have not gotten into. So Mm -hmm. just as we talk about um, how anxiety can um, be the surface feeling when really there's sadness or anger underneath or or pleasure. There's deeper layers of frustration and anger in her. There's deeper layers of sadness. And so we're touching on those. Um, So she's so much farther than she was when we first met, you know, she really has developed from a, a helpless girl who's unsure if she can take care of herself to uh, a um, independent woman who's uh, in a mature relationship, supporting herself. And now as that independent woman, she's dealing with even deeper feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the way I, I think about that um, is o- often patients will bring the question up and, and there are times where I'll say, you don't need therapy anymore, but if you want to work deeper and to try to uh, more um, fully consolidate the health that's in you, then we can continue. And, and it sounds like that's really the point you are. She doesn't need your help to, to really function better in the world, but she could um, certainly use your help to function more deeply in the world. That's correct, yes. And I'm reminded of that basic thing that it's so easy to have it become sort of a cliche or a slogan, but what Reich said is just so profound. Love, work, and knowledge are the wellsprings of our life. They should also govern it. And those three areas, she has made incredible progress in her love life, incredible progress in her work life, her knowledge life, I think also her spontaneous, natural curiosity about learning things uh, has also improved as she's sort of gotten some of the weight of, of putting herself as the caboose off her shoulders. That's right. And, yeah. and one thing I'll, I'll say, you know, we entitled this webinar, um, 
a young woman um, obtains independence from medical through medical organ therapy. Independence isn't something that I, you know, I wasn't um, feeling or thinking, you know, she needs to be more independent. This is something that she needs. I need to do this for her. It was a natural impulse inside of her that came out. And, And so when she was dealing with her feelings, she became more aware of how dependent she was dependent emotionally, dependent financially. And she became more in touch with this wonderful, healthy impulse to be on her own, to be independent. And with those feelings uh, of independence and and that impulse, she became in touch with other feelings of the anxiety of, oh my God, I'm on my own. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm responsible for my feelings. And it was this wonderful interplay of, of, uh, economic independence, physical independence, emotional, and, and how that all worked together. But the, the point is, it, it was inside of her and it came out through therapy. It, yeah, it's no, not a moralistic thing to, to be independent, but it's there naturally. No, that's a, a wonderful point that you've made, Dr. Burrett, is, again, it comes back to us understanding the healthy impulses are spontaneous, and we simply have to do our work to help get the garbage out of the way that prevents people from living with those. So, yeah, no, that's, that's wonderful. So is there anything else you want the audience to take away from uh, this presentation and the story about Daisy? Well, I think we said a lot, but maybe it's worth just underscoring, which is what I said about how I I think the pandemic actually helped her progress even farther in her therapy. Mm -hmm. And let's hope this pandemic ends one day, but that that could, you could say the same for any kind of stress that comes up, any kind of adversity. Mm -hmm. Um, Adversity is an opportunity uh, to face your feelings, to deal with a problem and to be able to overcome something can really help someone emotionally to feel confident that they can handle the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, when I was thinking about this webinar, I, I remembered what I read in the man in the trap by Dr. Baker. And he mentioned it. One of the aspects of therapy is helping a patient face the world a little bit more unafraid. I, I think that's just a wonderful concept to, to be aware of. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's that, that's a wonderful note to end this on. So thank you very much for presenting this great case. Um, it, it was titled Medical Organ Therapy Helps a Young Woman Become Independent. But let's not leave you out of it. You helped this young woman become independent through your knowledge and skills. So thank you for presenting it. How do you feel after listening to this case? What do you think? Hearing it again, I think about how Daisy's earnestness with her therapy and her hard work really paid off. She didn't come to therapy expecting some magic cure, but we worked together to address her difficulties and her character. And each day between appointments, she did her part. She faced her feelings, however painful, and stuck with it. She has a lot to show for it. We are interested in your questions and comments, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to aco at ergonomy.org. Stay tuned for our next episode, and we'd love to have you join us for one of our webinars. The best way to help the ACO spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. I hope you'll share this podcast with your friends and family, 
and let them know about our work. You can connect with us at orgonomy.org or a different kind of psychiatry.com. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Thank you for listening to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast with the ACO. Since 1968, the psychiatrists affiliated with the American College of Orgonomy have been helping patients discover greater satisfaction, health, and overall well-being in their lives, whether patients suffer with mental illness, struggle with addiction, or feel unsatisfied with their work lives or relationships. Medical organ therapy as practiced by the physicians at the ACO offers a way forward, often without the use of medications.